This is The Uprising, starring Steve Alquist. I'm your host, Greg Brailsford. Today, we learn how the sausage is made at the Statehouse with Senators Sam Bell and Janine Calkin. Welcome to The Uprise, everyone. Steve, I see you're back with a vengeance. I'm doing my best to kick a little ass at the Statehouse, metaphorically, because I can't be at the Statehouse. So, uh, you know, we did some stuff on the uh, Corvici uh, highway blocking bill. It's such a uh, anti-constitutional, and I hated to say it, like, oh, this is a racist bill in public, like I did. Because, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's always about race, it's always about race. But this was about race. Absolutely, it was. You, you know, know? if you know the guy, you can you can just tell that's the type of legislator he is. He he goes after what he, he views as the, the marginalized folks. It feels that way. And I he always says, this is not what it's the intention is. This is not what the intention is. And as I said in my testimony, your intention, whatever it is, doesn't matter because the end result is that it's going to hit marginalized communities the hardest. And it's aimed directly at the protests of this last summer. That is black and brown people complaining that they're being murdered in the streets by police. Right. So, yeah, it, it was uh, a lot. Everybody who testified in the bill testified against. It, right. And I think I was one of six to eight people who testified that night. And everybody testified. against. It. No one had good things to say about it. Um, I think the bill is dead. But we're going to keep an eye on it and make sure it stays. Yeah, I just I don't see that coming to a floor vote and getting approved. I just don't see that happening. Even Rhode Island, we've got some questionable Democrats. I, I just don't. I don't see it even coming out of committee, but I think that would be problematic, too. Even rewritten or slightly revised, I don't know. We'll see. We just keep an eye and we'll, we'll keep an eye on it and see. And the other side of the aisle, we have the uh, Senate and the Senate uh, uh, Environmental Committee just reconfirmed three CRMC, that's the Coastal Resources Management Council members, who are also very problematic. I had video of the chair of that board, the council, shutting down a woman of color complaining about basically environmental pollution in her district. And then during their testimony, these three people lied about what that video showed. They, I mean, I don't know if they knew there was a video. They should have known, but they lied. They said that she was yelling, she was abusive, that she like made threats or whatever. And all these things they said about her testimony. I did a little video yesterday cutting their statements to her actions to show exactly what she said, how she said it. And their response to her was they were mad because she was angry and because she said they were being coward. And they were. They had every opportunity to do better, and they chose not to. It was very, very, very sad. So... so I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, did Sunrise do an article on, on Uprise that, that talked about this? Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, annotated, you know, links to a bunch of articles I wrote. And yesterday I put up a piece which shows the video from the hearing, plus shows, uh, has links to everything I've written on the Port of Providence issue going <clears throat> all the way back. And you can see the, how this developed and how this came about and how from the very beginning, Governor Raimondo put these people on that board to have this decision made against this community of color in the Port of Providence. So, yeah, we're, we're finding really fast just how many bad decisions uh, former or whatever you want to call her, Governor <laughs> Raimondo, made before she decided to uh, take uh, take the Biden administration job. Uh, presumptive Commerce Secretary. Presumptive Commerce Secretary, yes. And this, and this goes to show you that in the Democratic Party, you can be literally the worst-liked governor in the entire country. And still get promoted. Yeah. How amazing is that? It's, uh, well, I guess in a couple of weeks or days, it's not going to be a problem anymore. So we're going to have, you know. This we have a new problem. We'll have uh, McKee and we'll see how he does. Uh, Dan McKee, in my opinion, is more conservative than 
uh, Gina. So it's, it's and I think he's less confident than her too. So you get I, I've I've worked with him um, on business roundtables, and I was quite unimpressed. This is when he first became lieutenant governor. I'd say a year in or so. Uh, very unimpressed by the hollow promises and the things he said that he never came through on. Okay. And um, uh, yeah, so that was my, that's my only experience with Dan McKee, but it came across as very fake. And this is when I actually, you know, tolerated and liked democratic politicians. You know, I was still, my eyes had not been fully opened by the fact that they're <laughs> a complete scam and it's just basically Republican light, you know, but, but I didn't know that at the time and kind of, you know, bought what he was selling. And I now I know better, you know, well, I but say that people I talked to, at least in the racial justice communities, some of them, not all of them, I don't want to put that as one big blanket, but I talked to some people who feel that he might be better, maybe better on certain environmental issues. And we'll see. I don't it's know possible. I mean, honestly, you know, this is controversial, but I, I came out in support of his statement that teachers should be prioritized in the vaccination uh, system because, you know, I argued that, all right, uh, folks in the old old folks homes, all right, the workers there should absolutely be vaccinated first because they're obviously bringing this stuff in to the nursing home and, and vulnerable people there. And they can't leave. They can't really adequately protect themselves all the time. So it's very important they get vaccinated. But then they're vaccinating the actual residents of these homes. And I, I question that. Like, why are we doing that? Like, like who, where are they going? Where are they going to get coronavirus from? They're not going to get it from visitors. There's no visitors. They're not going to get it from the workers there because they're all vaccinated. So where are they going to get it from? Why are we wasting vaccines uh, prioritizing these folks when they're not a high risk? They're a high risk of dying, for sure. But if you're not a high risk of getting it, then shouldn't we be vaccinating the people who are a higher risk of getting it and, and can spread it to a lot of people like school teachers? Um, just just my thoughts on that whole thing. That's interesting. So, I had, I, uh, governor McKee, our future Governor McKee, though, came on and said, like, I think teachers should be prioritized. So I agree with him there completely. All right, yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. I think what we're going to get from McKee is a different mix of pros and cons. Perhaps, yep. You know, yep, I can see so, that. And which, is, which means that we just have to, like, you know, alter our progressive strategies accordingly. Right. Yeah. We have to now, figure out what this is going to look like. Speaking of uh, future governor slash Lieutenant Governor McKee, who do you think he's going to, who do you think applied since it's a big dark secret? Uh, who do you think well, applied know, to be Lieutenant Governor? I know that former Senator uh, Donna Nesselbush has applied because she let me know. Okay. Um, and I know that apparently from what am I reading is that uh, Policina, the mayor <laughs> Policina is going to be in charge of figuring out or, or in charge of that committee. Yeah, it's going to parse through all the applications and figure this out. That sounds like a train wreck. Okay, um, <laughs> I have yes, I'll. I'll I have I'll, my opinions about policy, and Steve doesn't have to say them, so I'll say them <laughs> for him. Okay, policy and his buddy over there in North Providence, Lombardi, not not the uh, not the high end of of politi politics in Rhode Island. If you want to be nice about it, um, policy did do that thing a few years ago where during a Democratic rule Democratic Party rules meet, committee meeting came out and made this long speech against progressives and how his Democratic Party is a party of guns, pro-life, and a bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with the Democratic Party writ large in the state. Right. I mean, in this country. Yeah. Maybe in the state, but not in this country. And held up a vision of a Democratic Party, which has felt like what you said earlier, Republican light, and was really awful to progressives. Um, at the time. So, you know, this is a couple of years ago. I don't think that he's changed all that much since then. No, no. I mean, just listen to what he says. You can you can catch it, you know, his quotes in the Valley Breeze and other papers, you know, pretty on a regular schedule. And, and like I said, him and Lombardi cut from the same cloth. I've dealt with Lombardi personally uh, more often than I'd like to. 
and just just a horrible, horrible administrator. I'm not afraid to say that. Just a terrible administrator. And, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. Uh, but as a former resident who literally moved out of North Providence because of him, wow. because of the mayor, okay, and moved to Cumberland, much, much better town, in my opinion, uh, to live in uh, based on your tax rate and your services that you receive. Is it McKee, a former mayor? Of uh, McKee is. McKee uh, <laughs> was not the mayor when I moved here. He had just, I believe he had literally like six months left. Okay. Uh, I think I moved here April and his the election was November. So, so in a sense, you came to McKee's Cumberland. I came to McKee's Cumberland. You could say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was gone. And, and granted, McKee left us, you know, with this stupid charter school stuff. Right. Horrible, yeah, yeah. horrible decision. Instead of putting money towards the public schools that we already pay for, we decided to just divert those resources to more schools uh, because quantity over quality. Right. And it'll be interesting to see if McKee, as one of his first actions, vetoes this uh, new thing that both the House and the uh, Senate seem poised to pass to prevent the expansion or um, introduction of new charter schools. I saw that for like three years. McKee, as one of his first acts, could veto that bill. Well, I mean, I don't know when that bill's going to be ready and go to the governor's mm-hmm. desk, but that would be I, certainly be governor by that time. I certainly think that if McKee wants to put a big red target on his back uh, with, from progressives, then he should definitely veto that bill because that's what's going to happen. Um, this is not your old school progressives, my friend. These are aggressive progressives. Yeah. And we're not going to tolerate that. I so, think McKee's going to um, find himself the target of progressive uh, um, attacks in the Democratic Party, no matter what he does. So in a part of his calculation might be, why worry about it? Well, I tell you what, if he does, if he does smart things, you know, like he, like he came out in support of vaccinating, vaccinating uh, teachers as a priority, I'll defend him. I'll go on Twitter and I'll talk to any lefty who wants to, to, to trash on that. And I'll tell them where to go because, you know, anyone that knows me knows that I take the tact of whatever makes sense. Okay. Whether it's a righty or a lefty that proposed the, the, the issue, uh, I'm going to defend the, the right decision. And I'm not, I don't play that, you know, Huffington Post, you know, lefty, um, lefty liberal media game where, you know, if the right, the righty does it, oh, it's wrong. And if the lefty does the same thing, oh, this is cool. We should do that. Because you're seeing that now with the Biden administration. Um, you know, kids in cages, no problem. It's good. It's all good. Right. He hasn't changed anything at all with the kids in cages that, in fact, he, he opened a new cage facility. Although he, is, he has written documents. I know he hasn't, he hasn't gotten rid of ICE, right? Something he could do. He could say, All right, I stand down. Yep. Executive order wise, he could do a lot to damage ICE and, and, and get rid of this this whole this whole asylum, treating asylum seekers as if they're criminals. He could do that in the stroke of a pen. But, you know, people on the left like me knew he was not going to do this. You know, you, because you guys, you vote blue no matter who people gave him no reason to do that. I would love to see him just as, you know, shooting out there, right? Being a little bit out there. I'd love to see him shut down the space force, right? <laughs> just fold it back into the Air Force, be done with it. Just It was a dumb idea. Yep. We don't need a space force, right? I mean, I don't know where Trump was getting these stupid ideas, but, you know, space force is stupid, and we don't need it, and I would really love to see that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, space force, you know, how the, how the problem with the federal government is once an agency is created, no matter what, it never gets and that's erased. Why, and Look that's at DHS. Mean. DHS, a massive, massive waste of money. Besides, I mean, besides the military wasting eight to nine hundred billion dollars a year, you've got DHS wasting another uh, hundred, two hundred billion, whatever it is. 
um, just on nothing. Americans get no return on this investment. Nothing. Well, the idea is that there's industries out there that are building weapon systems for, you know, like, you know, in Connecticut, all those gun manufacturers are selling more guns to DHS agents, right? Every ICE agent hired has to go out and buy a brand new gun. Yep. Every ICE agent hired has to buy a brand new taser and a brand new set of cuffs or whatever it is. And we supply that new Jeeps, new money. You know, yep. it's so all about all about money. Money on that, and these certain billionaires make more money. Yep, yep. Um, so we have two awesome guests on this today's show. But before we get to them, and we only get to them in about five minutes time, if okay. that. I do want to quickly mention Rye Rank is starting up our 2021 ranking season. Yeah, and uh, just released. The election strength rankings. So election strength rankings are the one segment that RyRank does that uh, is not really a, a job performance indicator. Uh, I know some people like to, to call it that. And great, granted, great legislators are going to do well in their elections. You know, look at Sam Bell. Sam Bell barely won his first election in 2018, and he absolutely destroyed his opponent in 2020. So as, as people learn about you and become, you know, familiar with your work, you know, it's it certainly... Uh, bodes you well to do well for your constituents in terms of, you know, the election. And you'll see that. You see a lot of these these legis- legislators who really don't, you know, call out bills, call out call out bad things in bills and really make some noise with their constituents in terms of, hey, I'm fighting for you. You see these guys in their primaries and their general election, they win, but it's like, you know, five or 10 points. And that's the five or 10 point. Oh, I've heard of this guy. I haven't heard of the other guy. Right. And that's pretty much how it works. And with Y-Rank, we're trying to eliminate that. We want you to be able to go to ryrank.com and see how your legislator has performed. How they've are they are they voting for your uh, if you are they voting for the public goodwill? Are they voting for your civil rights, your human rights, uh, things like that? Are they voting for your ability to make your voice heard? And with Ryrank, we kind of uh, uh, have created formulas that rank legislators uh, according to those those uh, criteria. And I was really nervous about the first year, 2020, that we did because, you know, we had our overall rankings. Then the election was coming up and it was like, all right, let's see if if people use RyRank as a reference. Let's see how the top performers in, in RyRank did versus the election. And it was I was thrilled to find out that except for Maura Walsh, uh, and she was in a unique situation yeah. where, you know, the, the person that ran against her was really well known in the community. And it was a tough uphill battle for her to win. But with the exception of her, nearly every well-ranked um, legislator and in Rye Rank, won re-election. And those that ranked poorly lost. So it was a great indicator of, of who's going to win, who's going to lose. And that's really nice to see that, that we weren't wasting our time with this. Yeah, that plus the numbers. I think if you live in a district where your legislator is weak, then you could run and beat that person. Absolutely. And that's a good point, Steve. So you brought that up. And election strength, the, the whole point of doing this report is to kind of show people that you're exactly right. That not only do uh, so few people run against incumbents, right. so the stat we pulled, we did some cool stats this report, so definitely check it out. But one of the stats is uh, 66% of all races last last election, 2020, in the state house were uncontested. Now, think about that. 66% right? uncontested. We had this, like, progressive wave in Rhode Island taking the legisl- legislature, but... We did that by only contesting a third of the seats. And but that was, you know, imagine if we could contest two thirds of them, what would we change? And and that's the that's the point I want to make, too, is that uh, I'm going to bring it up right here for a second. I'm bringing the report up and I'm going to, I'm going to take a look. So um, so uncontested races. So total was actually 63 percent of, of the last three years, I should say, with the last th- three years, the last three election cycles. So that's covering six years, last six years. 
63% of all races in the General Assembly were uncontested. 76% of primaries uncontested. So the Democratic candidate, in most cases, the Democratic candidate, automatically wins uh, their primary because nobody decided to run against them. Now, what happens when someone does run against them? That's the most exciting part. So we had a lot of progressive legislators run in 2020. And in the primary, uh, it was about the same in both the Senate and the House. About 38% of challengers beat the incumbent in the primary last year. So when, when people say, you know, the incumbents have a huge advantage, you know, you're not going to beat the incumbent. Okay, first of all, almost 40% is a huge number, huge number, okay? Um, so that that's very brings, if you're a progressive looking to run, that should really get your hopes up that you have a chance. And if you're a great legislator, can make some noise and show people how you're a differentiator, you're going to do well. Um, the other thing is uh, general election. I thought this was funny. And it shows just how hard it is as a Republican to break into this, this state. Uh, in the Senate, last election, 0% of, uh, of incumbents lost in the general election. None. In the House, it was 7%. Uh, overall, it was about 5%. So not a very good chance of winning if you're a Republican. I think this explains why so many Republicans in the state run as Democrats. You know, we talked about, you know, the Frank Chacones, the Arthur Corvises, uh, the Nick Mattiellos, who's gone now, but these are all Republicans in every sense of the word, but they all ran as Democrats. In fact, Nick Mattiello was the leader. Imagine the leader of your party actually being a Republican. That's, that's crazy, but that's, that's what it is. So if you're a progressive, the point here is if you're a progressive and you want to make the state better, run. Run for office. And there's so many resources out there to help you. Uh, email Steve, okay? Email Steve at Uprise. He'll guide you on the resources that are available. Yeah. Uh, reach out to the Rhode Island Political Co-op. But there's not a lot of, if you're not a fan of the co-op or you want to go your own or whatever it is you want to do, I think the co-op's a great resource. But if you want to go on your own, a few progressive legislators chose to do that last election. And uh, most of them won. I think all of them won, uh, regardless. So there's resources out there to help you. Take advantage of them because we want to make round a better place. And the, and the only way we're going to do that is to elect progressive legislators because these, uh, these liberal Democrats, these righty Democrats, uh, they just don't care about making your world better. They don't. They're, they're in this job primarily for them, whether it's a stepping stone to uh, a governorship or Congress or a private industry gig, whatever it is, that's what they're looking for. That's you know, just what I believe. You can uh, see the results this year at the Senate and the House of progressive wins last year, right? Because we are looking at a $15 minimum wage. Yep. We are looking at a real climate action. We are looking at all sorts of things that seemed impossible two years ago are now going to happen. They're not only going to happen, they're going to happen. I mean, we're going to make positive changes there. So, you know, step up. And also, if you're thinking, oh, wait, I couldn't do that, believe me, you can do that. Take a look at some of the legislators we have up there and tell me that you could not do a better job than some of the people who are in these positions of power right now. You can, I can tell right now, if you are listening to this podcast, you can do And And if you're, you're in your 20s, you figure, I'm too young to run for office. We had a lot, a lot of 20-somethings run yes. for office in 2020, and most of them won. Most of them won, bottom line. So... Uh, yeah, this just, is your decade, millennials. Step up. It is, and it's nice because you know before the co-op came along, there wasn't there weren't a whole lot of like big giant resources to really give you what you need to win. And now that that's there, and there's probably other ones as well. 
Um, there's just so many ways to to win as a progressive now. And if you're a good person and you can you know articulate that to voters, you're going to win. So speaking of our state legislator, we have two guests on today. We have Senators Janine Kalkin. Janine retook her seat in 2020 from uh, McKinney, I believe she beat. Yeah. Uh, McKinney had beaten her in 2018, and she uh, came back with a vengeance to take that seat back in 2020. We're excited to have her on. And uh, later on, we'll have Sam Bell. Sam Bell, the number one ranked senator on Rye Rank for 2020. And um, if, you, if you're familiar with his work and how he picks apart nearly every bill that seems to be introduced at the State House, you'll see quite, quite quickly why he was the number one ranked senator. Um, he knows his stuff. He fights for his constituents. And, and you know what? He fights for people who aren't his constituents either. You know, I've written to him on issues. He reads every single bill that comes. Every bill, every bill. And I, and I'll be willing to, to put my reputation on the line that he's one of the only ones in this general assembly that does this might even be the only one. Um, because you just don't see people in the entire state. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so if you have questions about a bill, you know, I've reached out to Sam and he's answered my questions. He's not even my Senator. So I think that's really cool. Uh, and Janine is, is uh, super, super nice and a great person to talk to as well. So we're going to have her on in a minute. And our first guest here is Senator Janine Kalkin. Senator Kalkin won her race in 2020, beating Mr. Was it McKinney? What was his first McKinney. name? Yeah, Mark McKinney. Mark McKinney. Is it Mark McKinney? Yeah. Isn't that an SNL alum too? It might have been. I, I think it might have been a different first name, maybe. I think he was on Superstore, too. I missed, anyway. that, I missed that season. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't on that long. But anyway, well, uh, Senator Kalkin, welcome to the show. So uh, obviously this, this episode is about how the sausage is made at the State House. And uh, we have you and Sam Bell on. And for your perspective, since you uh, were previously a, a senator, in fact, before Sam, and then um, lost a close race in 2018 and then came back with a vengeance in 2020. And uh, so it's nice to have you back in the Senate. Um, I did want to talk about, uh, as far as how the sausage is made, I want to talk about your experience prior to this session. So obviously... With Nick Mattiello running things in the House, uh, I'm sure that, and, and, and Dominic Ruggiero running things in the Senate, I'm sure that there were a lot of really good pieces of legislation that got killed um, in the past. And there's a lot of ways that they do this. And so I wanted you to kind of help our, our listeners, you know, understand that, you know, why for so many years, um, no really good bills really ever passed. Like, what kind of roadblocks did you run into in the Senate? So there are um, a few issues that happen. A lot of times uh, you can have a hearing uh, for a bill and a lot of people will turn out and provide um, really good testimony. And, um, you know, it goes really, really well. But unfortunately, everything gets uh, held for further study unless the leadership wants it to go through to the floor. So, um, you know, one issue is that the people in the committees can't vote the way that they would like sometimes if, uh, you know, if they want a bill to pass out a committee um, because there could potentially be some backlash. And then, uh, of course, there are bills that we do pass either in the Senate or in the House that once they get to the other chamber, just kind of die in committee. So those are both two big problems. I see. And and I have a, you brought up a really good point here with the committees. And I think a lot of our listeners do wonder about this. You know, you've got uh, a committee vote, let's say there's seven members in the committee, 
and you see, you know, a seven zero vote, right, or a six to one vote, or some overwhelming vote for legislation that's good legislation. They voted, they vote to hold it for further study, uh, mm-hmm. which we can talk about in a second. But essentially, it means that we're we're not taking this bill up anytime soon. And explain to the listeners why a a member might vote, uh, you know, against a bill like that in committee. What are the motivations they might have to do that, or the reasons why they would have to do that? Do you mean um, vote no to hold for further study? Or yeah, they're going to well vote to hold a bill for further study, a good bill that they would they would you're ex- expected to support. They're voting to hold it for further study, and and people I'm sure are wondering like why did my you know legislator do that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, usually um, it's because that's that's pretty much what is expected, right? Uh, you know. We the chairs of the committee serve at the pleasure of the Senate president or the speaker. So they could potentially, you know, if they were to go rogue and do something, I mean, that could they could face backlash for that. They could be removed. Um, same thing with the members. The members are appointed at the, you know, by the speaker and the Senate president. So, um, you know, if you want to keep your place on that committee, uh, you know. I guess it's expected to to go along. Um, I, I have seen in the past sometimes like people will vote no on holding something for further study because they think, you know what, we, we've studied this issue enough. It's, you know, we've see, heard this bill five years in a row. Um, you know, so I, I do hope that there's more of that, uh, you know, this year with um, some more of the progressives coming in uh, to the General Assembly this year. Um, but we'll see. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you do hold something for further study and they will bring it back uh, with a sub A based on testimony. And that's fine. And, you know, that's kind of the way that it should happen. Um, but there should be a good reason to hold it for further study. I'd rather, I'd rather have a vote on a bill in a committee and either vote it yes or no to go to the floor than just to hold something for further study because people don't want to vote on it. You raised a good point there on the committees. And I think that a lot of our, our listeners um, and a lot of people in general think that, all right, so so a bill's up in the committee, and my my senator is a member of this committee. Oh, cool! So they're going to go in, and they're going to vote how their constituents feel or how they really feel about the bill. And what you've brought up is a good point, and that is that this is not actually true most of the time. They're going to vote how the committee chair and how leadership wants them to vote. And I think this is kind of a shock to a lot of constituents that that don't know this is going on. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's tough to say anyone's motivations for Mm -hmm. why they vote one way or the other. Um, but there is an expectation that, you know, even when things come to the floor that you will vote yes. Um, so I think it's, you know, it takes a certain amount of bravery and a certain amount of, uh, you know, willingness to (laughs) potentially, you know, face some consequences for voting your conscience or voting the way the people in your district want you to vote. Um, you know, I hope we see more of that, uh, you know, as time goes along with more and more bold uh, progressives being elected where they're willing to, to stand up and uh, do the best thing uh, for their constituents and for their, you know, voting their conscience as well. You know, it's funny because I watched the uh, Senate Labor Committee vote on the uh, $15 minimum, minimum wage from Anna Casada's bill. And in that vote, it was going to be 50-50. It was going to be, I think, mm-hmm. four to four because four conservative or three conservative Democrats and one Republican were going to vote against the $15 minimum wage bill. And in order to 
win that vote, the Senate uh, Majority Leader, the Senate President, and the Majority Whip were all using their ex officio memberships on that committee to vote for it, making mm -hmm. the vote seven to four. Um, so they were willing, I mean, there's no, I don't expect to see any punishments for the four senators who voted against this minimum wage bill, even though this is a Senate priority, this is a Senate president priority. But progressives feel that if they were to vote against something like on their conscience, that they might uh, feel fear retribution. And I think a case to be made is if Raptakis and Picard and I forget the third one are, uh, I think it was De Palma, are uh, voting against the Senate leadership, then so should progressives be able to do so on their bills when it's important. Yeah, um, I was I was uh, watching that um, go down as well, and uh, yeah, I I mean it was a it was definitely you know a close vote, and uh, you know the senators who voted against it. I mean, one of them was Jessica Dela Cruz, who's a Republican, right. so that was kind that. of expected. But um, you know, sometimes that's what happened when you put conservatives, you know, or you pack. A, a, committee one way or the other is that you can have something like that happen. And we saw it happen the other day, yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, for those senators that voted against it, um, because of their beliefs, then, I mean, in a way it's kind of good to see that because they, they voted their conscience, but at the same time it was, you know, it was very close because, you know, it, Obviously, I support the $15 minimum wage and want to see that bill, you know, pass on the Senate floor and pass through the House. So for me, it was kind of a, a scary moment there for a second yeah. to see it be so close. But, um, yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, uh, you know, things like that have happened before. I think with the RPA, we saw, um, yeah. you know, with the vote in the Judiciary Committee as well. And um, I'm not sure if there was any retribution that happened because of that. But, um, well, yeah, it's it, interesting to see what, you know, that means for the rest of the session. Right. Well, when the RPA passed, the Reproductive Privacy Act passed, that was, they couldn't get it through uh, Senate Judiciary. The Senate Judiciary had been carefully crafted in a way to make sure mm -hmm. that it was impossible to pass this legislation. And the Senate president and the Senate majority leader were not going to step in and say, oh, yeah, ex officio, I'll put the vote in because they were planning to vote against it. They wanted it to pass without their votes, or despite their no right. votes. And so they had to move it over to uh, Health, Health and Human, Human Services, Services, right? Yeah. And, and pass it out of there because it was, because, and I think labor is in a similar position. They've stacked it with so many, I, I hate to say anti-labor, but I'm going to say it, anti-labor forces that getting things through will always be a narrow vote and difficult to do. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, yeah. uh, Senator Kalkin, you mentioned uh, retribution. And again, for our listeners that, you know, want to know how things work over there. So uh, you mentioned, obviously, you're, you're largely expected to do what leadership kind of wants you to do. So for the person that says, you know what, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the new progressive in town. You know, um, I want to vote how I want to vote. And, and that's what I'm going to do. What kind of retribution have you seen in the past for people that did vote their conscience and didn't went against leadership? Well, um, I think it happens probably more. I mean, we've seen examples of that in the House, yeah. um, less so in the Senate. Um, you know, it, it could be very subtle things, um, but, you know, potentially you could be taken off a committee. I, you know, um, I, I don't know if I have any specific examples of things like that, but it could be like little, just little subtle things. Um, 
you know, where your office is and, and things like that. But we'll see what happens this year because there's going to be a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, progressives that will come forward and, you know, be very vocal about bills that they don't like and things like that. So we'll see what happens. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I don't, for me personally, um, you know, when I voted against the Senate president back in, I think it was 2017, um, you know, I didn't get a, a huge amount of uh, backlash from that because, you know, I made it very clear about why I didn't. And um, so I think it's we're going to have to see what happens this year, right. at least as far as the Senate side um, and also in the House with the new speaker to see what kind of happens over there. Uh, I, I do hope that, uh, you know, the leadership in both chambers really do realize that, you know, when we speak out or we do things like vote against bills, it's not necessarily because we're, we're playing some kind of political game. It's basically because we're trying to vote our conscience and right. do the right thing. Are you happy with your committee assignments this year? Um, I mean, I, I am, uh, I did, I would have liked to have been on environment again, like I was the last time uh, right. because I do care very passionately, uh, passionately about what happens. And uh, especially after, um, you know, this week's hearing with the CRMC reappointments. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I can't complain either. Uh, you know, education is very important. So I look forward to serving on that committee yeah. this year. Good, good. Um, yeah, as far as the CRMC thing, I expect to hear some uh, stuff on the floor next week when those come to the windows come up, because uh, I, I was shocked to see two of the three reappointees to the CRMC literally lie to the uh, committee about what had happened years ago in 2017 mm-hmm. at uh, CRMC meetings in the port about the Port of Providence, uh, mischaracterizing the actions of uh, the woman who they tried to cut off. I thought it was uh, really kind of amazing and really upsetting. Yeah, I, you know, I was there as well. And I'm so glad right. that you were there with your camera to capture that. But um, yeah, uh, very, I was very disappointed, um, you know, to see the votes the way they came out and um obviously it's uh, it, it's it's very disheartening to see um when things like you know you can call it systemic racism but you know things like that where people who live in the port of providence are once again you know kind of people are turning their backs on them and um you know, I think it, it's imperative that people stand up and really try to listen to both sides. Um, you pointed out the fact, too, that, you know, they could have voted no and had FERC overturn their, um, right. you know, decision. Right. But they chose not to do that. They also chose to not release uh, the information, um, you know, to the lawyer, I think, uh, you know, about and the AG came out and said, you know, that they withheld that information. Right. If, you know, the people who were testifying had that information, they could have obviously brought it up during the, the conversation at the hearing. So, right. um, you know, to me that, you know, rewarding bad behavior like that is just, you know, unacceptable. And, um, you know, I, I do hope that in the future that people are listened to. And I think all of the, the testimony was pretty much negative at yeah. the hearing. And, it was. you know, it, it just didn't get listened to. Right. Well, I, I, I call it systemic racism when I write about it, but and there's a point at which it becomes just racism, racism, right? It's just people acting in racist ways personally. It's no longer systemic. You are actions as part of the system 
are coming from a place of personal racism. And uh, I haven't gone there yet with anybody, but it's going to come because you can't keep voting this way. And some of the people on that committee voted this way at this time, and they voted exactly the same way three years ago when these reappointments were up. And I'm sorry, but these are racist votes, and they, they need to be held accountable at some point. I hope they're listening. Well, I mean, that's, you know, what we're trying to do at RyRank is to hold them accountable for these votes for at least the votes that Common Cause and, and ACLU can can grade, um, and in both you know the the committees too. You know what's nice about the the committee situation, uh, Senator Kalkin, is that at least on the Senate side where they do report the actual committee votes, um, these people get hammered now when they when they in the rankings when they vote against good bills like that. You know when they vote against human rights when they vote against civil rights things like that. So um, that's exciting. I don't know if it's moved the needle any, but at least uh, you know we're gonna reward legislators that that don't do the groupthink thing, you know. Um, mm -hmm. The last question I want to ask you um, before we run out of time here is, uh, is there a bill or uh, bills that you can think of in the past that passed the Senate but were stopped in the House that were just really disappointing to see? Um, well, I know I had one previously that um, it was a bill that would basically allow the state to apply for uh, money for Medicaid services from the federal government um, to help people who are homeless so that they could get uh, services. And, you know, it passed, uh, if not unanimously, very close in the Senate and then died in the House. Oh. Um, you know, that was one, obviously, that I cared very much about. And I thought it was a, a really simple, good bill, and it, and it died. Um, I'm trying to think if there are others. I, I, I'm sure there's tons of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, Steve mentioned the fair pay bill uh, that obviously, even though they passed a bad version, um, I, I'm pretty sure that they knew that was never going to pass the Senate. Oh. So that would be another instance. But, uh, you know, it happens all the time where good bills are, are passed. There's there's a lot of um, uh, things like uh, uh, criminal justice and things like that uh -huh. that pass every year in the Senate that die in the House. Actually, um, the Senate just passed Mary Ellen Goodwin's bill um, of for I, I, I'm trying to remember, there was one this year that we just passed that has consistently died. I think she said it was the third time um, that we're passing it this year that died in the in the house. So, right. um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, good bills when they pass one one of the chambers uh, will get addressed right away rather than waiting until the end of the year. That's another big issue that happens, and then it becomes a big kind of uh, you know negotiation about which bills are going to pass and, you know, oh, you passed this bill, we'll pass this one. You know, that's really a detriment to Rhode Islanders when they do that kind of negotiating at the end of the session. Right. Um, if a bill passes early in one chamber, then hopefully the other chamber will take it up early and, and pass it rather We're than waiting until the end of the year. We seem to be on a different timeline this year. Things are happening much faster than they used to happen. I mean, things are passing, at least not a committee in the Senate, um, when in the past, it might have been March, April, or May before we'd see this kind of action. So I'm generally hopeful mm -hmm. that things are on a different schedule this year. Yeah, I think it's a good sign that, you know, we pass things early um, because then, you know, hopefully that means that the other chamber will take it up sooner rather than later. Right. But that obviously doesn't always happen. But um, it is good to to pass things earlier, especially if we've been hearing them for multiple years in a row. Right. Uh, there's really no reason not to send it to the other chamber sooner than rather than later. Nice. Thank awesome. You. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Senator Kalkin, you can read about her at 
JanineKalkin.com. You can follow her on Twitter, at JanineKalkin. Uh, Senator, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for calling in. Absolutely. It was great to talk to both of you. Thank you. All right. Thank Have you. a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. You too. All right. So, Senator Kalkin there, always a pleasure. Um, really, really good about explaining, you know, the kind of the nuances and things that uh, you see at the State House that are not always on the up and up. And uh, so it's always nice to have her voice in there. And joining us now is Senator Bell. Senator Bell, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thanks for calling in. So we just had Senator Janine Kalkin on, and we talked with her about uh, a lot of the issues that were plagued, that plagued the Senate in the past, or, or I should say plagued the General Assembly in the past. So situations <laughs> where good bills got killed, you know, got held for further study, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the way that retribution uh, would be dished out, not so much in the Senate, but, you know, in the House when you voted against a bill that, uh, you know, leadership wanted you to vote on or, or vice versa and things of that nature. So, um, you know, I, I was hoping that we could talk to you about the new session, and and we talked to, to yeah. uh, Janine a little bit about this as well. But the new session, in terms of the new dynamic you're seeing, you know, are you seeing that mm-hmm. things perhaps are different this time around in terms of how Senate leadership is is handling new bills? Senate leadership hasn't changed, but the power dynamics in the Senate have changed. They're afraid because progressives just want an overwhelming series of victories. Their efforts to seek retribution against Uh, me um, in the election failed catastrophically. And so (laughs) they uh, no longer have the the fear. The members, people aren't as afraid of them anymore. And and they understand, you know, fundamentally Rhode Island is a blue state. And people whose politics align with the National Republican Party are always going to be politically vulnerable in a state that is fundamentally a blue state. And so the they are afraid. They're afraid. I wouldn't say just for the progressive legislators. Really, they're afraid of the people of Rhode Island because the people of Rhode Island ultimately do live in a democracy and have the power to change the system and have demonstrated a desire to do so. And so they're under pressure and they're moving on policy, not necessarily in the way that we would always want in a detailed sense, but in general, there's been a huge shift on policy. And they've been less able to take retribution than they would have been in the past. It's a lot less petty retribution. It's a lot less culture of bullying. There's a lot less um, personal nastiness involved. Oh, there is some. There is some retribution. But it's not quite as nasty. And uh, one of the really important things that we're seeing is more broadly, including on the right, senators are starting to lose the sense that they can't think independently, that they uh, have to be do whatever the leadership says. Oh, we've even seen this with, um, you know, uh, Senator Pickard, who is an old conservative. Um, he was punished by the leadership essentially for his loyalty. One of the things that the leadership does is they tend to reward people who go along with them, but they think might not, who have been a little disloyal to them. But they actually tend to treat the people who've been most loyal to them uh, kind of like crap. And Senator Pickard had uh, his chairmanship of the Commerce Committee uh, removed because they felt that they could do whatever they wanted to him uh, and use him and he would remain loyal. And so he was downgraded to deputy president pro temp. 
which was kind of insulting to be kicked off a being chairman of a high-level committee when he had been a lockstep loyalist to the regime. And so he, he sort of sought some revenge at the Labor Committee. Now, I think he picked a stupid issue to do this over. I personally strongly disagree with him. He decided that it was terrible to raise the minimum wage yeah. and decided to really fight in committee against raising the minimum wage. And I don't think that's representing what the people of Winsocket or Manville want, but that is the fight he chose to pick. And so, you know, there was a real little bit of a little bit of an upset in the labor committee because of that. And but we're seeing the fear that leadership has created in the rank and file break down. We're starting to have more open discussion. And there might be some messiness about it. Might mean conservatives, you know, do more in public. It might mean um, you know, there might be some complications to this, but democracy is messy, and I think democracy is a much better place for us to be on the whole than a system of all the power at the top. You, you raised a good point there, and we talked to Senator Kalkin a little bit about this, too, in terms of, you know, the the group think in terms of like you got a committee vote. Let's say there's seven senators on the committee. And it's a good bill. It's a bill you want to vote for. However, leadership has said, uh, we're going to hold this for further study, which uh, as we've have we come to know, at least in the past, that means the bill's dead. Have a nice day. See you later. It's just a polite way of, of voting it down without voting it down. So uh, that used to happen all the time. And now you're alluding to, and, and Senator Calcutt as well, was hopeful that um, you're going to start to see people in committees say, you know what, I'm going to vote my conscience here and not what leadership says. Are you, are you starting to see this already? We are really starting to see this. And, you know, progressives had some fights. Uh, you know, we really fought because we felt strongly that we can't allow insurance companies to uh, not pay uh, for telemedicine at the full level because there's a real possibility this is going to be to a heavy degree the future of health care. And so we felt that allowing insurance companies to make massive profits by shortchanging uh, what they pay for telemedicine and denying coverage uh, was going to be extremely damaging to the future of the healthcare landscape in Rhode Island. And so when there was a telemedicine bill that had been watered down to basically allow for that, uh, we uh, worked pretty hard uh, to push back against that because we felt you know, really strongly that this is potentially something that's going to be a lot of the future of healthcare and the way the rules are written now is going to determine whether there are families and peers around the kitchen table because they've been slammed with a massive bill that's unpayable. It's going to determine whether there are healthcare providers who are really struggling to fund the care that's needed to deliver to patients who really need it. And so we, 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 we got real, you know, initially the leadership did not want to listen and they kept proposing new amendments that watered down the bill even further in favor of the insurance company. That's something I personally believe was driven heavily by Patrick Tide, the insurance commissioner who's a, happens to be a former, uh, in the health insurance commissioner who happens to be a former health insurance executive. And, you know, we got to the point where they were going to put it on the floor and we were going to have a floor fight. We were going to put up a minute. And you know what? They sent it back to committee right. to work on a better bill. So what we've seen is that we have power and they're willing to listen um, because we have power when it comes down to that. Now, some things will get rammed through. 
with the CRMC appointments, for instance, uh, you know, a yeah. lot of us were outraged when these commissioners voted to approve a fossil fuel project, an LNG terminal, um, in, uh, you know, in Washington Park on the south side of Providence. A terminal that, by the way, when it was in a wealthier white community in the Mount Hope Bay, everyone in Rhode Island united against and it was defeated. So when that happened, a lot of us were very concerned about the commissioners who voted for that, and we really wanted to see a change. And so, you know, we're not going to get all what we want, but already two commissioners uh, are not getting reappointed to the CRMC, and that's a game changer. Now, we're going to have a fight on the floor about their efforts to ram through the rest of them. But what we're seeing, I think, is that the power is shifting. And now that we have more power, more is being won. And quite frankly, I think if the leadership weren't willing to listen at all, they might start to lose control of the chamber even more. On the CRMC uh, reappointments, you're expecting a floor fight on that. Um, do you think people will bring up the fact that the two of the CRMC reappointees, uh, Cervenka and Koya, basically lied to the committee about the way they treated a woman who was speaking against the project uh, in the 2017? Um, I think that it is very possible that the level of misrepresentations from these commissioners uh, may well come up on the floor. Uh, what, there are some other things that I, you know, I intend to raise. For me, I think what I intend to talk about is there's an easy thing for a lot of people who believe in a cause in principle. They believe that the climate crisis is real and something must be done about it. But when it comes before you to make that call, before you to make a vote, that means really challenging the not just a corporate interest, but the entrenched political interests that surround that corporate interest. That means challenging the status quo in order to hold to the values and principles that you know are correct. It is so easy for people to come up with an excuse and a reason why they don't have to cast that vote, why they don't have to do this, why it's different for you when you were in the position to actually make that decision. And I really want to talk about that because I think for a lot of people, uh, that drives a lot of these things in the Senate. People might agree in principle, but when it comes to in practice, the decision that they actually have to make, there's always a reason, there's always an excuse why they don't have to walk that particular line and take the vote for doing the right thing when it challenges the entrenched and powerful interest. So I really want to talk about that. And another thing I think it's important to bring up when we talk about appointments, is some of the uncomfortable things that the Senate never really wanted to talk about. So one of the things I, I do talk about sometimes, and our minority whip doesn't like it when I talk about it, but I sometimes do bring up people's party identification. And one of the things you know I found is that there really is a correlation between who is a registered Republican, who has been active in Republican Party politics, and who tends to advocate for corporate interests. Um, right. and, and I really do believe that, that there is a correlation there. So when it comes to Don Gomez, you know, for me as a Democrat, to want to put a Republican Party politician, former Republican school committee chair from uh, Little Compton, still a registered Republican, I, I really think it's time that we, we understand and talk a little bit about what it means to be the kind of Republican that a Democratic Senate would want 
sitting on a public board. And I do believe we should apply a little extra scrutiny to some Republican nominations. I know that sounds partisan, but, you know, I am a Democrat and I'm concerned about the Republican Party, some of their politics. Another thing I think is important to discuss was the raw power politics of how these commissioners were put, several commissioners were installed in order to remove commissioners who were more environmental commissioners who might have actually voted against that project. And there really is a need to say that that effort was immoral and it was wrong, and we need to stand against it as the Senate. Right. Those not those three nominations you're mentioning that were done by Raimondo in, I think, the summer of 2016 or 17 were done to basically stack the CRMC in favor of the national grid. And it was and and she did those uh, reappointments in the middle of the summer. Normally, those uh, reappointments come around now in January. And this latest batch of reappointments and appointments is coming from a lame duck uh, uh, governor. She's leaving. She threw out all these reappointments and said, here you go, and kind of filling all these seats ahead of McKee, who might have different, maybe better, maybe worse ideas on who should be in those seats. Yeah, I think if you look at it, there's kind of a focus in in the people who were reappointed tended to be people who were very close to Raimondo and tended to be people who were very close in a somewhat controversial way to some of the corporate interests uh, on those boards and commissions. Right. Um, Another example that really, I think, is part of that trend uh, is um, Jean Rondeau of the State Retirement Board, um, who has been a very consistently anti-worker vote. Um, another one, you know, I would argue, honestly, even more than possibly out there, I, you know, Rondeau might be the most loyal, hard, live person on the retirement board, you know, and, and then you get, um, you, you get people like the airport corporation. I mean, right. the mismanagement at the airport corporation has been wild and out of control. And two members of that corporation, you know, who are supportive of the current regime there. And the, and honestly, this is more than ideological, it's straight up mismanagement. Right. Um, it's really bad to watch, you know, the airport fall apart, the revenue plunge, and so much money get wasted. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the corporate welfare deal for the airline that Hillary Clinton said should be banned from America because of their unethical business practices that we spent all this corporate welfare money on and then had them leave Rhode Island a couple of years later. Anyway, um, I'm talking about the broader environment there, labor violations. Right. Yeah. Um, a completely mismanaged deal that had uh, everyone who wanted to take an Uber walk into a private garage so the Rhode Islanders could pay a tax to a private corporation. Um, that was ridiculous. I had to do that. Oh, man. Well, you know, all that, it was a very, it was, it was a very concrete thing for a lot of Rhode Islanders to face and see what extreme mismanagement looks like. So I really don't like the mismanagement going on at the airport corporation. And I've seen before we talk about the environmental questions around efforts to phase out air quality monitoring and, um, uh, you know, the power grabs around their condemnation authority, things like that. So there are two appointments on that board that are being rammed through and proposed. And, you know, that's really concerning. There was also an effort to maintain the 
corporate ed majority on the board of ed. And, and that is a power battle that, you know, I'm very thankful. I think the leadership listened on this. A lot of senators in the leadership were concerned about the majority on the council on elementary and secondary education. Right. It's not gotten quite as much concern about the higher ed governance, which in some ways has been just that. But in terms of the Council of Elementary and Secondary Education, the non-reappointment of Karen Davis has been a huge power dynamic shift. Um, and I think uh, as we look at the, the ongoing uh, fallout in the Providence School under the takeover, uh, that is going to be a, a really, I hope, a key turning point as we change the power structure that has underlined and backed up efforts to do really brutal things in Providence schools. That has been sad because, quite frankly, the schools needed fixing, and maybe I was naive, but I was interested and really optimistic about the possibility that we could have someone come in, focus on fixing the schools, and not reopen a chapter in the education war. Because there are a lot of problems in the Providence public schools that have nothing to do with the education. And uh, I was hopeful that we might start thinking about some of those and addressing some of them, but we didn't. Right. And instead, it just has degenerated into a pretty brutal chapter in the education wars, an effort to break the union, an effort to funnel and, and charterize and basically turn the city into a bunch of charter schools, including some with really horrible ethics practices, uh, treatment of children. Um, and, you know, there was one that, that wanted to get rid of summer break, um, basically, that was approved. So, so I, I think that we're, we're seeing some of those positive shifts, and I do believe that it's ultimately a result of some of the power shifts in the legislature and Rhode Islanders making their voice clear that we don't want to necessarily just support the corporate agenda that the political machine has rammed through our state year after year after year. Fantastic. Well, Thank you. Yeah, you, you raised a really good point about that. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, things are changing because I think that Rhode Island voters are, are sick of it. You know, you vote these people in and then a single person, literally a single person, just stops everything, whether it's Nick in the House or on occasion uh, Senator Ruggiero. So it's nice to hear that things are changing. Um, I did want to switch gears a little bit here and I wanted to talk about COVID. Mm -hmm. Now, you were very vocal yeah. and rightfully so uh, this past year about how the the legislator, both sides of the legislature, specifically the Senate too, where you serve, did nothing for uh, Rhode Islanders in terms of holding sessions, in terms of introducing bills, in terms of helping in any way. Can you kind of like summarize just what, what happened there? It was a shock to me. You know, sometimes when you make predictions about what's going to happen, and, you know, at a certain point, you, you get used to politics in Rhode Island, and you get pretty good at making predictions and understanding what's going to happen. This one threw me for a loop, I have to say, because I had predicted, I had thought that the battle that we were going to have in Rhode Island was a little bit like the battle at the national level. I was going to be fighting up there to say, when we do our relief efforts, let's make sure that we include workers, let's make sure that we include our healthcare system, and we don't just only cater to business interests. But within the state Senate, the question, the question wasn't even about uh, whether we would do anything at, you know, with, who, it wasn't about, you know, which um, area of the economy would get the most relief, about who would get the relief. It was a there would seem to be an opposition to doing anything, to funding anything. It's the General Assembly that has the power of the purse. The General Assembly has the power to, to, to appropriate money to help. And, you know, there, was the, there were the federal funds that the governor spent with zero oversight. I did some decent things and some things I don't agree with. 
But what really shocked me, I, you know, even on small business groups, I would have expected, I mean, all the conservatives in the legislature will get up and talk about how much they care about small business. Always small business. Sometimes small business is used as an excuse to really talk about policies that are actually about helping big business. But we'll always go up and say, small business, small business, small business. And here was a real crisis facing particularly these small businesses in our state. And nothing. And that shocked me. And it shocked me that, you know, I had to go join with the key in his um, campaign to provide small business relief. I thought the Rhode Island political system would do that automatically. I had to call up the guy who runs the Commerce Corporation and beg him to choose to explore doing a TIF, which they have the power to do, to bail out small businesses that would otherwise shut down. And it shocked me that I had to go beg for business relief, um, that that didn't happen automatically. And that shocked me quite a bit. Yeah, I, I was very surprised about the talent. And early on, the Senate president told me, this now is our time to make cuts. Now is our opportunity. And I think that was the mantra. But what happened is, is Rhode Islanders stood up and we fought back. And there was a real movement against budget austerity. You know, groups like Reclaim really pushed it. And so many people st- stood up, spoke out. And then when we had all these wins, you know, in, in June, a large part of the political co-op and DSA, and, and groups like that that fought so hard for electoral wins and get a sweep of electoral victories for progressives that really sent a strong message against brutal budget cuts. And so the dynamic shifted, and in the end, we mostly fought back against efforts to cut it more. Where we need to go now is we need to make investments because there is still an awful lot of suffering out there. I still get calls from people who are asking for rental. who are in danger of losing their homes who are thousands and thousands of dollars behind on their rent because they've lost their jobs. I still get calls from people suffering financially through no fault of their own because of this crisis. And that there are businesses shutting down all throughout our city, mostly um, minority-run businesses, businesses that are not run by people who are particularly wealthy. And we're seeing a health care crisis play out, a public health crisis that still needs funding. We need funding to address um, so many public health needs. And we aren't doing that. And one of the things I think that the pandemic has laid bare is the lack of um, infrastructure to address health care among the undocumented community has really meant when we have infectious diseases that um, it, it's really created a, a damage to the broader island community it's beyond the undocumented community. I think one of the lessons we need to learn is that we have to care about health care for our undocumented people. And we have all this new money. We're, we're, we're now looking at, for this fiscal year, probably added up like an extra $100 million. It's time for us to do a supplemental budget to provide the relief that Rhode Islanders need. And then in the next budget, it's time for us to make bold investments in uh, our future and in boosting and lifting up the economy in this state. So the last thing I want to talk about with you uh, is really important, and I'm sure you you hold this this uh, to heart is the the minimum wage bill. That's that's well, I should say there's a few minimum wage bills I think that are that are going around. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about obviously the one that that is going to bring the $15 minimum wage to us much faster than in five years. I believe there's a, another bill out there by the uh, a couple of conservative Democrats and a, and a couple of 
uh, progressive-ish, maybe, um, Chacon Democrats. Chacon is pushing for a better $15 yeah, so, minimum so wage the Labor Chair, Senator Chacon, uh, has, has advanced a bill uh, that would provide um, uh, a more accelerated wage scale. Um, and, and, and also include some increases for tip workers mm -hmm. to bring tip workers up to half the minimum wage, uh, which I think is reasonable. Um, and then also uh, some hazard pay protections. Um, and, and, and I feel like, you know, look, I understand that conservatives believe that minimum wages um, hurt businesses, and, and I understand that. But it's also true that empirically, We've done studies, and there's a really strong emerging academic consensus that what minimum wages do is by putting more money in the pockets of workers, more money for workers, and um, it really boosts the overall economy because people who are minimum wage workers tend to live paycheck to paycheck. When they get a little more money, they make more investments in their local community. They're able to spend more, and it really provides a strong boost to the local economy. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, a lot of evidence really indicates minimum wages are a very positive uh, thing for the economy. I understand why business leaders don't like them, but I think the data really point towards minimum wages being good for uh, the economy and good for America. I agree completely. I think that if you look at other cities, major cities, I think it was Seattle being one of them, yeah, that enacted the $15 minimum wage, we saw that um, jobs did not disappear. Uh, all the, you mm -hmm. know, all the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the conservatives tried to say about a higher minimum wage never happened. And so I think it's clear that uh, a higher minimum wage to $15, I think it should be much higher than that. I think if you look at productivity from the 50s and 60s and scale it up, it should be $22, $23 an hour. But at, even at 15 I think it's, it's going to be a positive result for everyone, even these businesses that resist it. Uh, because I try to point out to whenever I get into con conversations on Twitter, I try to point out to these these business apologists, I call them, I say, listen, you know, you don't create jobs. I own a business. I don't create jobs. Okay. The people that create jobs, are the people that buy things. Okay. If nobody buys anything from me, then I, then I don't need to, I don't need to hire anyone. Right. So I didn't decide one day to wake up and say, I'm going to create five jobs. I don't have anything for these people to do, but I'm just going to pay them anyway. Nobody does that. Right. No business owner does that. So the fact that business owners create jobs is false. That's completely false. It's the people that, that buy stuff. So my question for you is, uh, I think minimum wage, raising the minimum wage is very popular, both nationally and locally. Um, what is your approach, you know, as, as one of the most progressive legislators in our, in our General Assembly, what is your approach to getting a, a good minimum wage bill through? Well, first of all, that's a very nice thing for you to say about me. Um, and so thank you for that. That's very, very kind. Sure. Um, you know, for, for me, um, there's a commitment that the leadership made. And part of our goal, our real overall strategy, is we put the pressure on the leadership. We force them to, to move to the left. We don't actually have a whole hell of a lot of control about how they do stuff. We create the overall pressure that forces them to move to the left. But sometimes it's really difficult for us to guide exactly where they move to the left. We can shape it on the whole, but we don't actually have all that much control over the specifics. The minimum wage is one of the places where they have chosen to do so, and it's creating a backlash from some conservatives. And our job is to stand up there and defend that bill and push for it to be stronger and to make sure that it fails to the Senate and fails to the Senate with force. We're going to have to get some forceful speech. We're going to have to, to stand up there and make a strong, emotional, compassionate, and passionate case for the minimum wage. And yeah. 
I'm ready for that battle. I'm ready for that argument. And we're going to have to make it strongly enough that the House hears and the House passes it. And when it comes to the budget, ultimately the minimum wage goes into the budget because um, it's required to because DEM, in particular in the state park, employs a number of minimum wage workers. And so it in, whenever we raise the minimum wage, it increases slightly the state park's budget. Uh, and I think on a couple other parts of the budget. Um, so it does have to go into the budget. And that is something that if we send a strong enough message, uh, we can make sure that it really gets forced in as part of the budget negotiations. It's something that the Senate insists on and that we don't pass a budget without a pass to $15 and a fair pass to $15 that doesn't take 500,000 years. So what can our listeners do? You know, listeners that, that feel that a minimum wage should be $15 an hour, they're supportive of this. What can they do uh, in terms of action, direct action, um, to, to get this passed, to help get this passed? Call your senator, call your, your representative. And I also, you know, encourage people to write and speak out in places like Upright. You know, I think it really has a lot of power to, to be able to write about these issues and, and interject it into the conversation. You know, your voice is always most powerful when you shove your voice into the places in which decisions are being made and with the rooms in which the power is. I encourage people to get on Twitter and because uh, it's a really great opportunity to engage directly with your legislators in a public sphere. People, I think, are a lot um, more constrained in terms of what they can say publicly. And, and sunlight is, is a really great disinfectant. So I encourage people to get on Twitter to write pieces for places like Uprise, to engage in the conversation that way, and to pick up the phone and to call your state senator and your state representative, both of them, directly, and have a conversation with them. I agree. That's that's definitely uh, uh, the smart way to do it. And, you know, our listeners should know that, you know, senators do listen, especially when you call. You know, calling is, is quite impactful, even on the national level, whether you're talking to, you know, Jack Reed's office or David Cicilline. So so definitely, you know, Sam's got some some really good recommendations there. And I, and I suggest everyone uh, that feels strongly about this bill, uh, you know, contact their representative and senator in the state and let them know that you support it. Uh, he is Sam Bell. Um, you can reach him on his website at sambellpvd.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His screen name is Samuel W. Bell. He is the senator for District 5 since 2018. Uh, Sam, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for calling to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And uh, thank you guys for all the work you do for the state of Rhode Island. Much appreciated, sir. We'll be chatting again soon. Uh, take care. Have a good week. Thank you, Senator. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. So Sam Bell, always a pleasure to have him on. Yeah. Um, very insightful. Uh, and like we said you know, earlier, he's you know, the one guy that reads the bills. You know? He actually reads the bills. And so he understands yeah. the legislation as he, he's able to discuss it you know, at length. So, um, you know, so really, really good show, I think, in terms of uh, learning about all the because if you're just an ordinary person and you don't, you know, follow up rise regularly or don't, you know, really dig into the politics of, of the day, you, you wonder why don't these things happen? Why doesn't minimum, why isn't minimum wage $15 already? Why was, was there no COVID help from Rhode Island? So hopefully we, we helped answer some of those questions. And I look forward to having further discussions uh, about these types of issues with other legislators uh, on the show in the future. So that does it for us today. Uh, if you have any feedback about the show, we really appreciate it. You can email podcast at rifp.co. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and 
many other podcasterific services. <laughs> uh, support our show by visiting upriseri.com. You can click donate. And of course, don't forget to tune into our sister podcast, Can We Fix It? Fridays at 12 p.m. on Uprise RI. Parental discretion is advised. <laughs> uh, for the latest news on Rhode Island politics, climate change, activism, and all that good stuff, visit UpriseRI.com. Steve, always but, a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. This has been a great week, and uh, we're going to go and do better things next week. Even better things, yes. Um, so uh, really appreciate you guys tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Uh, have a safe week, everybody, and take care. Take care.